With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars Larson. Thanks for listening to my podcast and for listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to talking to Nigel Jaquis about this uh, Well, this story he's done about mentally ill criminals being cut loose because allegedly there's not enough room at the end. Nigel, welcome back. Hey, Lars. How you doing? I'm doing well. Let's get into why we're seeing so often, not just in Oregon, but but all over the country, we're seeing mentally ill criminals that the system says we have no place to put these people. Why is that the case? And is it true? Well, uh, let me disagree with your premise. I I don't think it's fair to call uh, the people we're writing about criminals, but it is fair to say that there is a huge systemic problem here. So we have a state hospital that has 705 beds. There are three groups of people historically who have been put into the state hospital, people who have been tried and found guilty except for insanity, people who are unable to uh, aid and assist in their defense, so they're, they're unable to, to really understand the proceedings. And finally, those who have committed no crime and have been civilly committed because they're a danger to themselves or others. Five years ago, the state hospital's 705 beds were equally divided between those three populations. But today, if you're civilly committed, you basically can't get in. There are, uh, I think, 16 people who are civilly committed in the hospital. So what's happening is that there are more than 100 people who are ready to leave the hospital. There's no place for them to go. There are more than 100 people who are trying to get in. They can't get in because the beds are all full. So you have this incredible logjam. So what has been happening is that people have been stuck into hospitals like Providence or Peace Health in Eugene that have psychiatric beds, but they're meant for, say, a 10-day stay. Right. Some of these people are getting stuck in there for 100 days, 200 days. One person's been in there for more than a year. And while that might sound like an appropriate place, it's really not. They don't have the, they basically stick them in a room and lock the door not a lot of treatment. They're not really set up for those kind of patients. So what's supposed to be happening is there are supposed to be community placements, what are called residential treatment facilities or secure residential treatment facilities for people who need to be, uh, in essence, locked up. And there is just a gross shortage of space. And the, the, the net result is people, some of whom may have committed crimes, may be criminals, and some of whom have done nothing wrong, they're simply mentally ill, are basically left with no place to go. And so we may encounter them on the streets or on the max or on a bus or in a place where uh, they shouldn't be. 
and it's really a, a huge and systemic problem. Well, and when you said there are a hundred ready to get out, they're ready to get out, but maybe not to perhaps to to full freedom because they're not ready to handle that. Correct. They may be they may be needing to go to a secure residential facility. They might need a lower level of care, just a residential facility where they can come and go, but will get services on a daily basis. And the, the, the maddening thing for people who work in the mental health system is that the legislature in 2021, a year ago, appropriated $750 million, much of which would uh, have been aimed at creating new beds, new places for treatment in the community, which pretty much everybody involved agrees is the best place for people to get better, get treatment and get better. That money hasn't been spent uh, and, and so what the story I wrote about today was that one of the hospitals just got so fed up with the state's inaction that they took a very novel uh, position, went to court, said, look, we're, we're being forced to hold people that we can't help at great expense to us and, and, and a detriment to everybody. We want the state to take responsibility. And the court agreed and this court of appeals agreed that the state needed to take responsibility. But what is that? But when you've got a state that's got hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on the problem, they've got a problem right in front of them, and they haven't even spent the money. What what is taking responsibility add up to? What does it mean? Well, I, I think what you're seeing now is is massive pressure on the Oregon Health Authority to get the money on the street to get uh, people hired who are counselors and therapists and others who can staff uh, residential treatment facilities. One of the things I was surprised to find out is that you and I have both reported on the past on the difficulty at times of locating a residential treatment facility because some neighborhoods don't want it or neighbors yep. don't want it. I'm, and I'm you understand why. Really the issue. You, I'm told you, the you issue understand why, though, right? Out there. But, but oh, yeah. you no, can no, appreciate I, why people say, I don't, I don't want these people, forensic cases especially, sure. in our neighborhood. But, but it, 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 surprising to me, that doesn't seem to be the issue. It's not that uh, neighborhood opposition is blocking these places from being cited. It's just that the money hasn't been put out there. Uh, and, and so, you know, Pat Allen, who's the head of the Oregon Health Authority, said that the money's going out the door right now as we speak and that it just takes a lot of time to hire 700 people for the state and for the state to figure out how to put the money uh, in play without having it be wasted. So uh, pretty amazing situation. But, you know, there's 100 people waiting to get out of the hospital. There's more than 100 people waiting to get into the hospital. And <laughs> it's an amazing logjam. Can I suggest that it sounds like the problem is state bureaucracy? So what would be wrong with going to the very people who say, look, you dumped this problem on us. It's not our problem. You should take responsibility and say to them, if we gave you a, a certain amount of money and a set of criteria, this is what we expect to have done with the money. This is the the, you know, the result we want to achieve. Um, do that, and we'll let you keep the contract. Fail to do that, and we'll give it to one of your competitors. Uh, it, that doesn't sound that hard, but when you have the state doing all of it, the state doesn't do anything efficiently or well, in, in my view. Yeah, I, I mean, in this case, hard to uh, hard to disagree. It's it's um, you know, so many times we hear, well, we could do this if only we had the money. Well, there is the money in this case, so it's like, uh, you know, nobody's happy.
Well, it sounds to well, and and the other thing I noticed, Nigel. I mean, this is the state that that studied a piece of highway for twenty years out near Mount Hood before they finally built the you know the the road improvement, and and all of us kind of go back to that as a touchstone and say. These are the people who had to study a piece of highway for 20, it's not even that long, for 20 years before they could decide, you know, we really ought to widen this thing. And, and they, they had lots of public process. They did all the things, you know, so they could say we had public involvement. And then they went ahead and did whatever the hell they wanted to do anyway, which is what the state tends to do. They have lots of public hearings, and then they go their merry way, no matter what the public says to them. This, this is not the agency that I would expect to solve any problem. Well, I, I think whether we're talking about the, the situation on the streets in, in Portland or, or whether we're talking about the state statewide issue with mental health, the, the feeling of a lack of urgency does kind of pervade many of these conversations. And I think for a lot of Oregonians, that, that's really frustrating for people who have family members who are experiencing mental illness, which is many of us, if not most of us, uh, you know, the system is really broken. Yeah, it is. You got to read this story by Nigel Jaquis, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter from Willamette Week. Nigel, thank you very much for the time. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your calls in just a moment. But the bad news that came down today is we have more Bidenflation. That is, inflation in America has now reached a fever pitch that we haven't seen in almost 41 years. And I thought we'd talk about that with E.J. Antoni, who's a research fellow for regional economics at the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. And E.J. has generously agreed to talk to a non-economist who can barely balance his checkbook. E.J., welcome back to the program. Lars, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you in the audience. Thanks very much. Now, I want to make an argument to you, and I don't know if it works well for an economist, but uh, what we're hearing is we may be headed for double-digit inflation. I would argue we're already in it. Uh, and, and the logic I use for that is the number you were hearing today, 9-1, is based on 12 months. But if you look back to the first couple of those months last year, inflation was running at 5 5.5% or so. Uh, but last month, inflation was 1.3%. And while I'm not an economist, I can do math well enough to tell you, and on an annual basis, that's 15.5% inflation. Are we already in double-digit inflation? Oh, certainly, and especially when you start looking at not just consumer prices, but what we call wholesale inflation, or in other words, the price increases that businesses are paying. I mean, that has been, that has been in double digits since the end of last year. So, no, we, we are definitely in, in extraordinarily high levels of inflation. And, and you're right, the monthly rate of 1.3% that we just had in June. I mean, to put to put that number in context for people, prices are rising as fast in a single month as they used to rise in a whole year when Biden first became president. And then if you annualize that out, if we have June's inflation rate for every single uh, month for an entire year, because of rounding, it rounds down to 1.3, but it's really a little higher than that, you end up with an inflation rate annually of 17.1%. At that pace, Prices are doubling in a little more than four years. I mean, that's the definition of unsustainable. Well, and in fact, uh, for all those people, I, I loved the last president, uh, Trump. Uh, I know there are people who hate the orange man, but I think his last full month, December, was a 1.4 or was uh, was I think inflation had peaked up. A, no, it was one four for the last year that he was president. So uh, 2020. So you're right. It, it, a month's a year's worth of inflation in a single month. So. 
But we've got an administration. I, I played a montage earlier where the, uh, you know, we had Biden and, and all the people around him saying, oh, this is transitory. It's temporary. It's only a blip. It, it'll go away fast. They, now, they were saying that months ago. They're not saying that kind of thing today. But does this administration have the full measure of what's going on and, and how much they're driving it? Oh, my goodness. No, it, it, it seems like it's exactly the opposite. You know, when when you see the statement that was released uh, from the White House today, when, when they, they make these just garbage claims, I'm sorry, I just don't know what other word to use that that'll be appropriate for for national radio. <laughs> but they make these these claims about how we're doing everything we can to lower gas prices. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth since literally the first day of this administration. They have done everything they could to increase the price of gasoline, not reduce it. And then and then the White House spokesperson has the audacity to get up there and, and say things like, we're transitioning the economy. I mean, okay, transitioning in the sense that an iceberg transitioned the Titanic into a submarine, maybe. But I mean, this is this is just ridiculous. And and they're using this weaselly language to talk about something that is seriously harming people and dis- frankly destroying people's lives. The average, excuse me, the average worker right now has lost the annual equivalent of $3,400 in income because of inflation. I mean, that's more than some people's food budgets, for crying out loud. I, I, Even, just, I can't overestimate enough the impact that this is having on the average American. Even though a lot of employers have been forced to give out fairly good-sized raises, they're having a tough time getting workers in, so they've given fairly large raises, but the raises are still clocking along at three or four points or five points behind what the current stated annual rate of inflation is. So even if you've had some fairly good-sized raises, you're actually running behind, not ahead right now, right? No, Lars, that's exactly right. And, you know, this administration loves to tout the fact that nominal wages have been going up very, very fast. And that that part of the story actually is true, right? But exactly as you just said, inflation is rising so much faster that average real annual wages, right, average uh, real annual income is down 6.2% since Biden took office. I mean, imagine if President Biden had announced that he was levying a 6.2% income tax on every single American. That's essentially what has just happened. Let me ask you about this, too. I know that home construction in this country is one of the biggest drivers of the economy. Things that change. I mean, in other words, we have a fairly steady uh, purchase of automobiles, purchase of food, those things. But but home construction drives a lot. And you point out, or it's been pointed out, I think you pointed it out, that at tw- the beginning of 21, when Biden took the oath, mortgage rates were 265, 2.65. They're now at around 6% right now, which is a more than 100% increase. And you point out that if you run it through to what the actual mortgage payment is, that it's actually, even with a 20% down payment, you're looking at a 57% increase in monthly payments. People aren't going to be able to buy, huge numbers of people will not be able to buy new homes at all in those conditions. No, Lars, that's exactly right. And we are we are already seeing mounting evidence that activity in the home building sector is slowing down tremendously. And that is not good news for economic growth. We are seeing investment numbers go down, not up. 
And frankly, I don't see how how the second quarter numbers, which aren't going to come in until July 28th, but I don't know how the second quarter numbers are going to come in positive. I think they're going to come in negative, and at that point, we'll have our two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, and that's you know that's the old-fashioned textbook definition of a recession. So, what could they do right now? And is the answer that they won't do it because of the political consequences of doing it? You know, that's a really, really good question. Um, I'm a monetary scientist, not a political scientist, so I suppose right. you know, take what I say here with a with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, pretty much all of the problems that we are facing today economically are really just self-inflicted wounds. In other words, all we have to do to reverse these symptoms is to reverse the policies. This administration can today end their war on domestic American energy. They can today start greenlighting all the pipelines instead of what they did today, which was helping Canada to greenlight the sending of supplies in order to continue building a Russian pipeline. I mean, my goodness, like once again, this administration, for all their their talk about being tough on Russia, they are literally helping to make Europe even more dependent on Russian energy right now. That, that actually, today, because I hadn't seen that development, we're going to facilitate Canada shipping the parts to let Putin finish his pipeline to make Germany and everybody else in Western Europe more dependent on Russia? Yeah, this is in reference to the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that just shows the, the cognitive dissonance in this administration. Unbelievable. That's E.J. Antoni, who's a research fellow for regional economics at the Center for Data Analysis at Heritage. E.J., thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Your call's coming up, 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your call shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. And as always, we promise to put naysayers to the head of the line, something I think that Professor Bill Jacobson would agree with. He is the founder of the law blog Legal Insurrection, a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell University, a Cornell Law School. Uh, Professor, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. So I work in the media, and I won't take this personally, but the mainstream media and maybe maybe the rest of us have a problem with credibility right now with the American public, don't we? That's right. Gallup just came out with their survey that they do every year for 20, 30 years, and it's, I think, an all-time low for media. They don't have one category for media. It's TV media and a couple of different, but no matter how you slice it, the media is pretty much at the bottom of institutions that have support in the U.S. Ranking even below Congress? Because that's a low bar. Well, I think they're right about they're They're competing for the bottom position. Let's put it that way. Very low. I forget what the, the difference was. That Congress might be a little lower, but they're, they're basically at the bottom. And that's not how it's always been. Of course, you know, what's going on now is a total narrative-driven mainstream media. That's all that really seems to matter is the headline and the reaction. And, you know, if the truth follows eventually, so be it. But people have moved on by the time that happens. You know, one of the concerns I've got is that this isn't just an issue for a business, because that's what media is in America. It's a business, but it's an institution that people depend on, because I think the founders were pretty clear about warning us 
if you don't have a well-informed public, you really can't maintain the republic that we have. Fair, fair to say? Yeah, well, I think we are, in terms of media coverage of events, really in a post-truth world. That, if you remember, you know, during the Trump years in particular, we always used to follow the, you know, 24 to 72 hour rule. Whatever the big breaking news was going to be about Trump, whatever the big connection to Russia was going to be about Trump, usually it completely fell apart in about 24 to 48 hours. So if you gave it 72 hours, then it would fall apart. And that's really how you have to do it. They just roll out one after the other of these hit pieces uh, on Republicans, these narrative pieces. And by the time the truth comes out, days later, they've already moved on to the next one. It's a, a cycle of really sort of panic, sort of uh, frenzy-driven media coverage. And that's the problem. I'm talking to Professor Bill Jacobson. You can find him at Legal Insurrection, which is great reading every day of the week. But Tell me this, Professor, before we get to the question of, uh, you know, how this could get fixed and whether it's likely to get fixed, um, how did they get here to begin with? Because as a business, you'd think they would care an awful lot about maintaining their credibility, care less about keeping their politician friends happy, because if you lose your credibility, then your business goes down and all of the billions of dollars that are tied up in it go away as well. I mean, the media has a a self-interest in trying to maintain its credibility, or does it? Well, I think more, particularly in the Internet age, things are driven by clicks and eyeballs and traffic. I think there's real pressures that come from that. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, who becomes journalists? It's not, you know, your average person. It's people who, for the most part, are ideologically driven and people who, for the most part, are left of center or far left. And that nobody else really, because journalism doesn't pay very well. You don't get paid a lot as a reporter. And so who's going to do this? It's people who are doing it for some other reason. In many ways, it's very similar to academia, that it's self-selecting. The people who go into academia and the people who go into journalism already have a particular viewpoint, and they view part of their job responsibility as to be activism and to be uh, persuasive and to be somebody who influences the public. So it's really a perverse circle And it's very dangerous. And it's at the point right now where I think the media is in crisis because it doesn't it's lost its credibility. The traditional news media has lost its credibility and they don't know what's there to replace it. Well, so tell me this, Professor. I've always been a big believer in the marketplace, that if there's a demand for something, that somebody will show up to supply it. And I'm talking about legal products, not illegal products like methamphetamine, although now it turns out we've got China to supply that as well, uh, uh, meth or fentanyl or whatever. But but isn't there a marketplace hole there? You know, like, like the town that only has hamburger stands for fast food, and somebody says, hey, I'm going to go in and sell tacos. I'm going to sell them like crazy. That if the whole media landscape, for the most part, tilts to the left, pushes political agendas, and is not exactly honest, that it seems like that would be a tremendous opportunity for some actor to come in and supply a product that was both honest and trustworthy and perhaps a little right of center, which I thought Fox did, but they've drifted to the left as well. Uh, why isn't the marketplace working in the way it should to do that? Well, I think you have to look at different segments. I think the marketplace has created talk radio, which is wildly popular and mostly not exclusively, but mostly is a, a right of center phenomenon. And then uh, you do have cable where you know people may be critical of Fox News that it's, it's you know moved either the center or the left. 
but as in the range of TV networks, it is clearly the most right of the mainstream TV networks, and it's doing far better than the, the liberal ones. So I think the uh, reality is that the market will reward that, and I think that's though also why you have this phenomenon of what's often called deplatforming or cancel culture. It is an attempt to prevent entrance into that marketplace. And the classic example, maybe the worst example, is Parler. Parler was an alternative to Twitter. It was growing hugely. We had more traffic at legal insurrection from Parler than we did from Twitter and Facebook combined. And the big tech companies conspired to take Parler down through the false accusation that the January 6th riot was organized on Parler. It wasn't. That's very clear. And so Google and Apple kicked them out of their app stores, which eliminates a huge market. And then Amazon Web Services kicked them off their hosting service with about 24 or 48 hours notice. And they essentially disappeared from the the uh, Internet. And uh, Parler was a big challenger to Twitter. Everybody said, well, if you don't like the way Twitter runs its business, go create your own. Well, Parler did. And it just so happens, a very underreported fact, it was reported that about a month before Amazon Web Services kicked out Parler, they struck a big hosting deal with Twitter. So Amazon Web Services eliminated one of Twitter's bigger, biggest competitors after having just struck a deal with Twitter to host uh, for the first time to host Twitter or parts of Twitter. So it's a very pernicious thing. So, yes, there is a marketplace for it. There are ideas. But that's why you have this phenomenon of deplatforming, which is trying to prevent people from becoming competitors. Okay, so let me ask you a question about the Twitter parlor thing. And I'll say we had a Twitter, we had a parlor account. We still have a Twitter account. I don't like Twitter very much. Um, But our parlor account just evaporated along with all the people who were following us on parlor. I liked parlor a lot. But what you just described sounds like a great antitrust case, doesn't it? Uh, You know, that that's that can't be legal or is it? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd need to know more of it. Of course, Amazon Web Services would say one had nothing to do with the other, but it's just coincidence that one followed the other. Uh, and, and so I, I think, I don't know if Parler looked into that at all. I think they did sue Amazon Web Services. But, you know, when you sign on with these hosting companies and these cloud companies and you click that you've read the agreement, well, you know, those agreements are written to protect them. Okay. <laughs> not, they're not negotiable. So I think Amazon said, hey, we had a right to do it. Look at, you know, look at paragraph 432, sub A, sub 3, okay, and we had the right to do it. So I don't know if that went anywhere, but uh, it was tremendously damaging. It is a parlor. It took them about two months to come back because when you have a user base of 10 million people or 20 million people, you can't just switch hosting companies. I mean. No, you can't. That's Bill Jacobson. He's a founder of the Law Blog Legal Insurrection, clinical professor of law at Cornell Law School. Professor, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. These are interesting times. And I don't necessarily say that that's a good thing, uh, because some of the interesting, most interesting things are tremendously damaging, like inflation and fuel prices and everything else. We've got what's going on in Ukraine, and then we've got the little crazy man who runs North Korea. And I thought we'd talk about that with Bruce Klingner, uh, because I refuse to be one of those people who get so tied up 
in all the things that are front and center, the shiny objects, and forget about some of the real threats this country is up against. Bruce is a senior research fellow at Heritage and the former CIA Korea deputy chief. Bruce, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me. So what is happening lately that tells us either that uh, the little rocket man is either becoming more of a threat to us and the rest of the world or less? Well, for those of us who have been watching North Korea for quite a while, it it tends to be more of the same. Uh, It goes and ebbs and flows. uh, But North Korea has been building its nuclear and missile arsenals for for decades. And uh, sometimes it seems to go quickly or uh, it's doing things in more provocative ways or more transparent ways. And other times it's sort of quietly increasing its capabilities. So, you know, it's sort of like a submarine periodically breaking the surface and people notice it. But then when the submarine goes back below, it's continuing, uh, you know, its transit, but people don't notice it as, as much. So uh, this year we've had an increasing number of uh, missile launches. Uh, just recently, they did eight launches, and that now sets a new record uh, higher than the 26 launches they did back in 2019. And we continue to wait on a, a nuclear test, which we think may come at really any day now. And what about this political conference? I guess that's what you'd call it, the plenary meeting of the ruling Workers' Party Central Committee. I mean, is this Kim Jong-un just trying to make his country appear as though it's actually run by a government as opposed to by a single dictator? Right. They, they go through the, you know, the facade of having committees and hierarchy and uh, you know, very, you know, various uh, organizations running things. But clearly, all of the, the decisions are made by the leader, you know, currently Kim Jong-un, but before him, his father and his grandfather. Um, and anyone who strays from the party line, uh, you know, is is sent to gulags or removed permanently. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a facade. And, and, you know, they have a constitution guaranteeing uh, lots of rights which are, are never provided to the citizens. Um, we always watch for any kind of formal announcement coming out after one of these kinds of meetings uh, to see if it gives a hint as to the direction of North Korea's uh, upcoming actions or perhaps policy changes. Because, as you suggested, if they're able to do things below the surface, like that sub under the water, and they're allowed to do it above, it's really up to Kim Jong-un how much he wants to reveal to the rest of the world. Exactly. Now, you know, we can certainly detect nuclear tests. We can detect missile launches. Um, but we may not know a lot of the details of, of what the system was. Is it a new one? You know, we, we can detect uh, the, the fact of the event. And then if it's a missile, how far it went, how long it went, et cetera. Um, but for the last several years, North Korea has been very forthcoming in revealing photos uh, of the launches and the missiles themselves, either in parades or uh, they had an arms exhibition last year or um, the launches themselves. They, they often have provided pictures and that's you know, have been a great source of information for us. Um, other times, if they, they don't release the details, we just have, you know, just knowing the, the distance and the height of, of the, the weapon. But, um, you know, even if they're not launching, they're continuing to refine their capabilities. And, you know, even if they haven't done a nuclear test since 2017, you know, Kim had declared that he wants to develop a, a new generation of smaller tactical nuclear warheads. So, Sometimes people will just sort of deny that North Korea has a capability until they, you know, it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
And yet that doesn't work to our advantage. What is he trying to accomplish with this political conference where he's supposed to talk about, you know, state affairs? He's going to talk about the COVID-19 outbreak that we read about uh, that, you know, for whatever information we had on it and maybe even talk about uh, how he's getting along with, with South Korea. What's he trying to accomplish? Well, it, we always, you know, tend to focus on what's the message to the U.S. or, or yeah. you know, what statements does he make about U.S. or South Korean policy. But sometimes the meetings are, are only going to deal with or they only reveal details about domestic issues. So I think certainly the, the COVID condition in North Korea is going to get a lot of detail. Uh, they've said after they've admitted that finally or finally admitted that they had cases that recently their statements have been that the the, the situation is improving uh, with fewer deaths sort of per capita than South Korea or the U.S. had. So, you know, we, we don't believe those numbers, but uh, we also haven't seen indications of really the, the widespread uh, deaths that, that many of us had thought would happen once North uh, once COVID got into North Korea. So I think he's probably going to claim credit that that uh, things are getting better. He's probably going to chastise some subordinates for uh, you know blaming them for the situation, and he'll probably talk about needing to tighten the belt yet again uh, for another notch to improve the economic situation. Absolutely. That's Bruce Klingner, who's a senior research fellow at Heritage, former CIA Korea deputy chief. Bruce, it's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And for decades, literally, I have been pushing for the idea of education freedom. That is, I want every single parent out there to be able to take his or her child or children out of the public schools, the government-run schools, and take the cash, that not as, as the form of cash, but as the, in the form of vouchers, and go out and seek education for your child anywhere you want it. You can leave your child in the government-run schools and accept the kind of mediocre results that they produce. You can take them to a private school, a charter school, an online school, homeschooling, whatever you want to do. Arizona actually this year struck a real blow for freedom there by saying parents can take a voucher. And when their child leaves the badly run government schools, they can go elsewhere and they can seek out the best education for their child. And that kind of competition will not only produce better education for those kids, but will force the government-run government schools, uh, uh, government-run so-called public schools, to actually up their game, we hope. Uh, I thought we'd talk about that with Jonathan Butcher, who's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at Heritage. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be with you. Hey, there are some states that do better, and there are some that don't do so well when it comes to education freedom. How, how do you and your, your fellows at Heritage define that? Well, in a new report that we released just last week, we looked at four different areas of what we consider to be the landscape of education freedom. We looked at school choice. We looked at the regulatory burdens on existing schools. We looked at the return on investment to taxpayer spending on schools. And we looked at the availability of um, parents to view what their children are being taught in schools. We call it academic transparency. And so on these four measures, we found that uh, you mentioned Arizona. Arizona was near the top, and then Florida actually ranked in the top three in um, 
uh, nearly every category. And what made them stand out? I mean, I mentioned the voucher program, but that only came about this year. Well, so Arizona has had education savings accounts going back to 2011. And it was just a few weeks ago that Governor Ducey expanded access to that program to every child in the state of Arizona. So that was the big victory for Arizona families when this, these accounts became available to uh, every student that wanted to apply. Um, in Florida, though, they have a K-12 private school scholarship program for children from low-income families. It's the largest of its kind in the country. They also have an education savings account option for children with special needs. And so that those things combined help to make Florida number one on our list. But, I mean, look, there were uh, lots of examples of states like West Virginia that has also enacted an education savings account program, uh, although that program is not in operation yet. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we weighted our study heavily on the side of school choice, but it that wasn't the only measure, right? I mean, we were looking at the ratio of administrators to instructional staff. That was a part of our, uh, our indicators. We, yeah. we looked at um, how, how much was being spent per child in public schools and what that resulted in terms of a one-point increase in uh, scores on the nation's report card. So, so we really had what I believe was a, uh, a thorough review of not just student achievement, but actual opportunity and empowerment for families that wanted to find a way to meet their child's unique learning needs. I'm talking to Jonathan Butcher. He's at the Heritage Foundation at the uh, the Education Center there. Can I ask you a detailed question about that? Because one of the things that's always bothered me about government, they're kind of like a criminal organization. They run two sets of books. They have what's called the general fund that they tell everybody about, and then they have the all-funds budget. And a lot of times they'll downsize what, they, what it sounds like they're spending on education by saying, oh, these are the general fund dollars. And if you ask them, well, is that the total amount of money being spent on education? They'll say, oh, no, we have an all-funds budget, but those funds are dedicated. That is, they may be dedicated to capital or to one thing or another. And if you put the all-funds budget in divided by the kids, then you get a, a fairly gigantic number in most states. So when you did your report card, did you do it from the all-funds budget and the total amount spent in K-12 education or just from the official numbers that they put in that uh, so-called general fund budget? Well, we looked at all three parts of the pie, right? And that's the federal money that goes to schools, the state portion of the budget, and then the local portion. The state and the local portions make up about 45% each. The federal side of this only makes up about 10% these days. Although in the past three years, over the course of the pandemic, Washington has sent unprecedented uh, amounts of money to local schools. I mean, we're talking somewhere upwards of uh, $200 billion have gone to K-12 schools. And look, here's the significance of that money, okay, that's been uh, sent to schools over the past, I mean, we're talking two and a half years, yep. about $140 billion has not been spent. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, right? So this is money that we were, as taxpayers, told that schools desperately needed to reopen, and yet a sizable portion, most of it, uh, is still not been spent. And to make matters worse, they were given great flexibility. That's not the bad news. They're given flexibility on how to spend it, but they also have the ability to spend it on administrative staff. And so that is something that the unions, I believe, are going to make uh, great use of. Uh, because they'll be hiring future union members. 
I, I, I want people to go look at the education report, freedom report card at Heritage, but that's really troubling because, I mean, uh, Jonathan, I, I try to make things, I, I love metaphors and all parables and analogies and things like that. But if a friend of yours came to you and said, Jonathan, I'm in, I'm in an emergency right now. I really need some cash. And you said, okay, I can give you $500. And you, you gave your friend $500 because he's such a close friend uh, and, and for this emergency he's facing. And six months later, you say, How, how'd that $500 help out? And he said, well, I've only spent about $100 of it. I've still got $400 sitting in my desk drawer and my bank account. You'd say, well, then you weren't really up against an emergency now, were you? I mean, that's that's essentially what the schools have done by getting 200 billion and then saying, well, 140 billion, 75 percent of it is still unspent. And the the emergency, for the most part, is over. Shouldn't taxpayers look at it that way? Well, I think they should be frustrated because even if schools say that they've dedicated it to some future expense, how did that help? Which it didn't. Schools open their doors during the pandemic with whatever sort of safety protocol the CDC decided was uh, required that day, right? I mean, we could put a finer point on this, okay? In Baltimore schools in Baltimore, Maryland, um, they actually closed early uh, some days uh, in the past few weeks, in the first couple weeks of school, because some of these schools didn't have air conditioning. And it was so hot that, you know, school leaders decided it was too hot for kids to be in school. Well, if you have, you know, this sizable amount of taxpayer money that was dedicated to schools, why is it not solving the urgent problems? I mean, you know, we hear from schools that they have capital issues and, you know, different things need to be refurbished or replaced. Well, I mean, what are we waiting for? That's Jonathan Butcher, who's at the Heritage Foundation on Education Issues. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Over the weekend, I saw something uh, more than a little bit disturbing because I think it's a harbinger of something that's going to happen here in the United States, except it's happening in Europe and Germany specifically to begin with. Uh, Germany began really going after the full green deal, and it didn't turn out well. They said, we'll shut down our nuclear plants. We'll stop using fossil fuel. We're going to go to wind and solar. I mean, all the same promises you're hearing here is just America is tracking behind Europe by a little bit. And then over the weekend, I saw that one of the biggest, if not the biggest, landlord in Germany that maintains thousands of apartment units said, by the way, we're going to start cutting back the heat in the wintertime in those apartment units and presumably the air conditioning in the summertime because we need to reduce the amount of energy. So they're not leaving it up to the tenants of those apartments. They say they're simply going to take it under, under their control instead. I got to thinking about that when I knew we were going to talk to Ray Keating, who's chief economist for the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council. Ray, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars, how are you? I'm doing very well, although I'm concerned that, as you made the point, Joe Biden is making a huge number of mistakes when it comes to energy in America, except I don't think they're mistakes. I think he's doing it on purpose. Would you agree? Yeah, it's, uh, well, I, when you look at it, it, it seems like the policies are specifically designed to undermine energy in the United States. And you're absolutely right to look to Europe, that we're uh, trailing behind there. And there are warnings this year about brownouts in parts of the United States. So, you know, you have to wonder what's going on here. And it's, it's pretty clear that you've got 
a anti an anti fossil fuel agenda. That's the bottom line here, and it's it's bizarre, ironic, and unfortunate when you think about. You know, I've been around long enough that po- I remember politicians worrying about we're always going to de- be dependent upon foreign sources of energy. And now that we've become the number one producer of crude oil and natural gas in the world because of the innovations in the energy industry. You dropped out, Ray, right after that, after we became the number one innovator, you were saying. Did we lose, Ray? Uh, Dusty, would you mind checking his connection? Because I'm not sure if we still got the connection. But Ray Keating's chief economist of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council. And I agree with him uh, because here we are producing a massive amount of fossil fuels, both natural gas and oil, to turn it into gasoline and diesel oil for fuel, for transportation. And yet, what do we end up with? We end up with a government that says, by the way, let's ignore all those great blessings. Ray, you were right in the middle of saying we had become this number one producer and then maybe I, maybe you had a blackout in your neighborhood. It could happen these days. <laughs> yeah, we've become the number one producer of crude oil and natural gas. We're leading the world, and our elected officials are moving against that industry, an industry that's been so innovative and creative in supplying what? Energy, heat, air conditioning to American, the American people, and we've got an agenda that is moving exactly against that. And it's just bizarre and frustrating. And it's going to, it's hurting our economy now, obviously. And it's going to, going to hurt our economy in the long run. I guess what I'm wondering is, are Americans going to tolerate this if they're told by their government masters, we have all this, we have all these riches of energy around us, and we're not going to use any of it. And we're going to supply you with something else in exchange. I mean, it kind of reminds me of a, a person sitting in a maybe a major uh, grocery store warehouse surrounded by food. And you say, well, you know, we're trapped in here, but we've certainly got plenty of food. And they say, oh, you can't use any of that. Here's an MRE, a meal, a meal ready to eat, which if you've talked to people in the military, they will tell you they're, they're not the, the favorite uh, thing to consume. And you say, well, why don't we use all this food around us? Oh, we can't do that. We can't do it. You got to use this instead. Well, this isn't very adequate. Doesn't matter. That's what you're stuck with. We're not going to use these riches that God has blessed us with. Are Americans going to tolerate that when their lights turn out and their their battery car doesn't operate and they're told, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to turn your, uh, literally the energy department saying you should turn your energy, your AC up to 78. Uh, Well, okay. Uh, Why can't I turn it down to 71? And they say, because you're just not allowed to. America, the biggest producer of energy (laughs) on the planet, is not allowed to use that energy, sit there and sweat. Yeah, no. Well, the polls are already saying that they're not happy with this. I mean, what, what a surprise when you look at the price of the gas pump and, and, and so on. But, you know, there's a morning consult poll that I referenced in a recent piece that hits on exactly what you're talking about. You know, 90 percent of voters support U.S. developing its own domestic energy. Eighty five percent believe producing natural gas and oil here in the U.S. helps America maintain leadership. You just go down the line. It's it's over 80 percent, 90 percent of Americans understand better than our elected officials uh, what's at stake here. And you know what? We don't need, you know, quite frankly right now, we listen, we could, could we use tax relief and regulatory relief? Absolutely. How about we just stop doing dumb things, right? How about we start approving pipelines? How about we start um, opening up federal areas, waters and lands to energy development and exploration? How about we stop proposing uh, bizarre tax increases on energy producers 
um, you know, let's let's roll back. Let's stop uh, uh, pushing forward with new EPA regulations. These are all things that that are happening right now that if we just stopped that would send a a positive signal to energy investors and energy producers. But will will Joe Biden and will his Democrat friends on Capitol Hill listen to the American people or they listen to a relatively tiny percentage of people who are the, the true green activists out there? Because I suspect the green activists have, you know, both dollars and votes that they control uh, and that they're more likely to listen to those people than the people. Is that am I wrong? Well, that's what we've been seeing, right? That's the problem with special interest politics. I think the only thing that can work against that is the fact that you know you you want you want the support of your base and that's their base as you reference that, but you also want to get reelected. That means the American people um, have to be on board with what you're doing, and you know they're not on board with uh, wild prices at the gas pump. They're not on board with paying more for you know natural gas and electric and so on. So you know, listen, I've always argued that sound economics makes for smart politics. Now, listen, I've spent a career trying to tell elected officials that, and it's been very frustrating. But it seems pretty clear to me that working against the American people, the American economy, American small businesses, doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense from a political perspective. I mean, one of the few things Bill Clinton was right about was when, James, I think it was James Carville, you know, put the big sign on the campaign headquarters back in the day saying, it's the economy, stupid, you know, and it was a direction to the candidate to understand people care a lot about dollars and cents issues and, and, and home economics in the sense of I've got to have gas to get to work. I've got to have heat for my home. I've got to have food that's kept cold for my family. And if I don't know how to have those things, it doesn't matter how many other liberal, uh, you know, uh, liberal, uh, you know, issues you're right on. If you're wrong on those things, I'm not voting for you. Right. And, and the question then becomes how far gone is this, you know, are our elected officials, uh, is the Biden administration and is Congress um, let's hope they're not that far gone. But, you know, uh, we, we need to be instructing them on the actual economics here and getting away from the pandering politics. Uh, Ray, it's a pleasure as always to have you on. That's Ray Keating, who's the chief economist for the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council. And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I'll do that in the next segment. Uh, I want to talk about California. Now, there are things about California that just irritate me all day long. They, they seem to want to dictate to the rest of the United States, the other 50 states, how we live. They want to dictate what kind of car you drive, how energy is produced. The list is very long. But I guess I hadn't thought about the idea that California might effectively dictate what kind of food you eat and how that food is produced. So the guy who's in the know in this is uh, Michael Formica, who is the chief legal strategist for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. How might California, and I guess in this case California voters, uh, actually dictate to the rest of the country what kind of food we eat? So it probably won't surprise you that California isn't alone in this. Massachusetts voters also tried to do the same thing. All uh, right, two, you know, two peas in a pod there. But California is a much larger state. And so in 2018, they passed a law uh, that seeks to regulate how we run all of our livestock farms across the country. Um, and I represent hog farmers. And 
importantly about hog farmers, there's none of them in California. 99.8% of the pork that California consumes, and they consume a lot of it, comes from outside of the state. And the state is trying to regulate how those farms are run in, you know, all across the country in every state other than California. Now, Michael, I don't know about you. I'm not a lawyer. I, I suspect you're, are you a lawyer? I'm, I'm a lawyer, yes. You're a lawyer. Well, I, we have a lot of them. Uh, I, I never wish we, for more. We got but a lot of them. I know. God bless you for being a lawyer, I guess. But tell me this. That seems to me, just as an ordinary American who's read the Constitution a couple of times, that seems like a, a violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Am I way out of line on in suggesting that California cannot dictate interstate commerce? Well, that's my view. I don't believe that California can. They're free to do whatever they want. And if people want to live in California and deal with it, more power to them. I choose not to live in California. Uh, and me too. Uh, right? Because I don't want to deal with that. And I don't live in Massachusetts either because I don't want to deal with, 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 with their stuff. Uh, but right wherever you live, you have local elected officials. You get to choose the laws that you're going to live under. And that's the beauty of this country. And right. California is, is trying to upset that. Well, look, Michael, in this case, I suppose California just imagining their reply to the interstate commerce, because the Constitution says it's clear. Uh, the Congress regulates interstate commerce. States can't do it, because if they could, they'd get up to all kinds of nonsense that would be very easy even for non-lawyers to imagine how they would mess things up. But in this case, I imagine California says, that's right. You don't have to go by our rules, but then again, you don't have to sell your pork in our state either. So... Do they have the ability to, to dictate that? Say, we're not going to let you, you, can, you, you, you don't have to go by our rules, raise your hogs everywhere else in America, you just can't sell them in one of the biggest marketplaces in America. Well, and so that's the problem, because the farmers don't actually sell the pork. If you're a farmer, you're raising an animal, and then you sell that animal to, uh, to the processor. And the processor makes that decision. So the processor's going to turn, you know, has been pressured by California and is going to go to these farmers and say, if you don't comply with California, we don't care that you live in Indiana or Iowa or you know, South Dakota. If you don't listen to California and you don't, importantly, you don't allow California enforcement agents onto your farm, then we're not going to be able to buy your, your crops, your, your animals. So, well, I get, you know, so then it comes down, I guess, to a bit of a standoff. I suppose the hog farmers could say, fine, uh, we're just not going to sell any product uh, or the producers, you know, the people who turn the hogs into bacon and pork chops and everything else. They can just say, fine, none of that is going to be for sale in California. So good luck. And when the, oh, I don't know, four, almost 40 million people in California find out they can't buy bacon anymore, then they, they get to, uh, I guess, take their pitchforks and torches down to Sacramento, right? Well, we, we, we could do that. That would be incredibly disruptive to the entire uh, country, to, to, to the nation's economy. And this isn't something unique to, to pig. This is across all of agriculture and really every industry out there. So luckily, we don't have to go down that path because the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear my case on Tuesday. Now, the you didn't have any luck with the, the Ninth Circus Court, as I like to call them, because they're the most overturned appeals court in America. They They, of course, didn't entertain your idea. Every case that came up from the Ninth Circuit last term was overturned. Um, that's right. They didn't. They didn't agree with us. They're, they're batting um, a thousand in in legal terms. Then, right? 
But that and a thousand. Okay, so at this point, the U.S. Supreme Court takes it up. What's the actual issue? Can you explain it so non-lawyers like me and most of my audience can understand it? Sure. You know, so, so this is what we would, us lawyers would call an extraterritorial law. What you or my parents or my brother would call, that sounds unconstitutional. <laughs> um, right? California is trying to regulate in another state. And the Constitution doesn't allow that. That's, that's essentially our claim. Um, the Ninth Circuit didn't agree with us. California doesn't agree with us. But the Biden administration uh, agrees with us. And so Are you kidding? Well, I, I'm going to have to end up praising the Biden administration for one of its positions. That That's going to be a red-letter day for me because I don't do that very often. We have 26 Republican attorney generals. We have one state, one Democrat attorney general from Iowa and the Biden administration. We have the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, um, Cato Institute, every every major food and retail and business organization supporting us, and the Biden administration supporting us because they realize the chaos that would ensue if you know if California prevails here. And this isn't just a, a you know California trying to regulate you know midwestern states. This could happen with any state. Right. New York well, might try to, you know, New York. Think about if you're if you're Vermont and you don't want to be you don't want New York or, or Massachusetts telling you what to do. You might be liberal more liberal than I am, but you want to be liberal on your own terms. You don't like somebody else coming into your house and telling you how to live your life. Well, I'm talking to Michael Formica, who's chief legal strategist for the National Pork Producers. So this doesn't even have to be livestock. This could be washing machines. I mean, because if California says, well, we're going to require that all washing machines have to be green and, you know, run by solar power or something. Uh, if they did that and the people who make washing machines say, well, if we want to sell in California, we're going to have to comply with uh, their requirements. So we'll just make all the washing machines in America. California could di- dictate things beyond food, couldn't they? California has taken the position in, in before the Ninth Circuit that they could set a minimum wage for California and use that as a requirement for anyone elsewhere in the country to sell products into California. And so that's great. You know what? The minimum wage that you need to live and the market would bear in San Francisco is um, <laughs> there's a whole lot higher than it is you know, in, in Sac County, Iowa. And they could say, hey, Iowa, you're only allowed to sell any of your products into our marketplace if you meet our minimum wage standards, even though I, I would imagine a San Francisco minimum wage would probably make you very wealthy if you're living in, in Davenport, right? It, 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 pretty much anywhere else, yeah. So, you could be in Tennessee, you could be in Iowa, you can be in, in you know, Washington State, you know, Idaho, wherever. California, well, right? you, California, you say $45 minimum wage. If you want to sell products here, are we likely to have to wait till June to hear the outcome on this, or could the uh, Supreme Court give us some relief before then? I've got about ten seconds. Uh, I think we're going to get a response. We'll we'll hear in January or February. Very good. That's Michael Formica, who's the chief legal strategist for the National Pork Producers Council. California wants to dictate to the rest of the country how we live. I suggest we tell California to pound sand on that. 
and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your calls, and I'll do that in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. If there's one pattern that I want you to watch about the Biden administration and how they're trying to push change, the pattern has two parts. Number one, the Biden administration, to a large degree, has not been able to get anything done on Capitol Hill, even though the Democrats have a tiny majority in the House and a razor-thin majority over in the Senate. So what the president does is he says, well, I'll do it through executive order. The second part of the pattern is that an awful lot, if not the vast majority, of Joe Biden's executive orders are then thrown out by the courts because he's doing it illegally or unconstitutionally or both. Now, if anybody knows, well, the person who would know and would correct me if I'm wrong on either one of those is Sarah Parshall Perry, who joins me now, legal fellow at the Mies Center for Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Now, was I off base in saying Joe can't get anything done on Capitol Hill despite Democrat majorities? He does it through executive order, and then the courts throw a lot, if not most, of his executive order changes out. No, you are exactly right. In fact, uh, I think the executive is out of control, and the only corral that's sort of in existence around this out-of-control executive branch is truly the judicial branch, because he can't accomplish even with slim majorities in the Senate and in the House, anything he wants to get done, probably because he knows that they're either unconstitutional or he won't garner the votes that he actually needs. But his executive has tried to find any way they can under statutory interpretation to shoehorn his pet projects through, and they have been routinely struck down by federal courts, not the least of which is the Supreme Court, who not only with the EPA, but also with the Centers for Disease Control and with the OSHA administration, has struck down three, count them three, of this administration's (laughs) attempts to use federal law to pass a policy agenda without actually making law. Now, usually when there's a Republican administration in and a Republican administration tries to do this and then they fail and they're thrown out by the courts, the news media goes crazy. The news media has been strangely silent on this. The latest example, though, and you've focused on this, is America's discrimination laws, which I do not think were were written at a time or within mind things like trans and pronouns and all that. What's Joe Biden's administration trying to do now with America's discrimination laws? Well, two of his federal agencies, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the Department of Education, have taken documents called interpretive guidance or technical assistance guidance. These are essentially ways of clarifying for the public what the law actually says and how the agency is going to apply and interpret that law. But here's the problem. When they make up a portion of the law that doesn't actually exist, and the Supreme Court has been very clear about what and does and does not exist, they can't use a phrase like interpretive guidance or technical assistance to actually make new law. And just recently, just a few days ago in the Eastern District of Tennessee at Knoxville, Judge uh, Ashley, federal judge there, struck down two of these guidance documents, one from the EEOC and one from the Department of Education. The Department of Education's guidance was Title IX, 
of the Education Amendments. That is the prohibition on any sex discrimination in federally funded education programs. And with the EEOC, it was Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibiting, among other things, sex discrimination in employment context. What the Biden administration has done, two different agencies took the same approach, saying that the Supreme Court's Bostock versus Clayton County decision from 2020 essentially shoehorned things like bathroom use, dorm use, showers, preferred pronouns, workplace dress codes, and athletics, and said, Bostock applies. We're Expanding, but we're just clarifying sex in federal anti-discrimination law to include gender identity. But don't worry, we're not making new law, which is exactly what the EEOC said. This is not, quote, new policy. Well, this federal judge just a few days ago roundly disagreed, and he issued an injunction against both the Department of Education's guidance and the EEOC's guidance ruling in favor of 20 states, a coalition of state attorney generals who said, guys, you've made it impossible for us to comply with our state laws and federal law because you take a different interpretation and you're making something up that doesn't exist. So this is a great outcome coming out of federal court in Tennessee. Sarah Parshall Perry is at the uh, Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. So To try and unwind some of this for my audience, I'm not a lawyer, and most of them aren't lawyers, thank God, either. Um, But what they're saying is Title IX, which referred to gender, uh, that when it was written decades ago, that I think it referred to whether or not you have a penis or a vagina. You know, that that's what gender was about, men and women. But now they want to shoehorn in, no, no, they meant biological men who now identify themselves as women or vice versa. And that's what they're trying to shoehorn in, getting them the bathroom and locker room and shower and and all other kinds of facilities treatments that they want without having to go to the Congress and actually ask those Democrats on Capitol Hill to write new law that actually says that. Is that about a good and is that how it's working? Absolutely. So what they're doing is they're utilizing this sort of, you know, easy, well, we're just clarifying, we're just issuing some informal guidance. And listen, this is a favorite technique that comes Absolutely out right. That is Sarah Partial Perry. Sarah, I've got a break. Thank you very much. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls to at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And John Schweppe joins me now, Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. John, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe you can explain this to me because maybe I'm just not woke enough. But there are people who are born uh, girls or born boys, and now they've decided they want to be something else. But if they end up committing a crime and go to federal prison, Joe Biden believes that they need to have millions of dollars worth of help to understand their transgenderism. No, that's right. Now, I will tell you, Lars, I am uh, fluent in woke. It's a pretty difficult language to learn. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But I'll tell you, you know, this is a priority for this administration. They want to advance transgender ideology at every facet of government, and that includes our prison system. And the crazy thing is, you know, you actually look at the numbers. uh, The Washington Free Beacon pointed this out. There's only 1,200 prisoners that are incarcerated that identify as transgender. But when you look at this program, they ended up getting more in terms of money going to this program 
than uh, than actually individuals did from the COVID relief, right? So, I mean, this is pretty nuts stuff. And, and really what we're talking about ultimately, I mean, there's some exceptions to this, but a lot of this is, you know, men that, that are incarcerated and then they want to be identifying as a woman. They want to go into the woman's prison. And Biden's administration is totally fine with that. That's, they're, they're good with it because they buy into this for Klein and Tinker. Okay, now I have a confession for you, John, because I've been a reporter for a long time, so I've been in prison any number of times. Not as an inmate, but just to, to talk to people who are behind bars. And in all those prisons, as I understood the rules, um, sexual activity between inmates, even when it was men's prisons and women's prisons, and we didn't have any transgender to speak of, but sexual activity was off limits because they knew the, the kinds of problems that you could end up with. Now, I, know, I understand there are lots of jokes about dropping the soap in the shower and things like that. But with that aside, um, why do we need a consulting firm, as you talk about, in, or as the Free Beacon talks about in its story, a consulting firm to develop a program to help transgender inmates, quote, manage identity concerns during incarceration and advocate for their sexual health and safety? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe they've changed the rules. There isn't supposed to be any sex in in these in these prisons where everybody is an inmate confined against their will. I mean, for good reasons they're confined, mm-hmm. but they're they're not there by choice. Yeah. Well, look this this administration, this movement, their ideology is very much premised on the idea that you know sexual identity is everything. You know, your ability to have sex at every minute of every hour is critical. And uh, so that's what this is about. You're right. I mean, I've heard the same thing. Um, you know, I can tell you that if I spent any time in prison, uh, I would be hoping that sex was the last thing I was thinking about. Um, but yet, you know, this is what the administration is prioritizing. And, you know, the crazy thing is the Free Beacon, they, they highlighted this one example, a $1.5 million grant. But this is all over the place. And it's certainly going into our schools. And I think that's where we have to fight back against this. And really, Republicans need to grow a backbone and say, we're not going to fund any of this stuff. This is completely nuts. It's like crazier than what you would expect out of a gender studies class in college. And uh, we should be doing better than this. Well, and part of the program, and this is where it gets even more disturbing, according to the Free Beacons reporting, out of that $1.5 million or so, some of it is aimed at promoting transgenderism even among minors, children who are in confinement right. of some kind. That, that sounds really disturbing. And the idea that they need to have uh, trans, uh, to help transgender inmates access hormone treatments after they're released. After they're released, why are the taxpayers paying anything to help them access anything? Why is that a taxpayer problem at all? No, we shouldn't be paying for it. Uh, it's purely cosmetic surgery, and I don't think we should be doing that. But you know, when it comes to kids, unfortunately, and this is something my organization, American Principles Project, is really going to work on in the fall with our campaign ads and all of that. But I think voters need to understand how committed to sex changes for kids this administration really is. They've made it a huge priority. They're trying to get the schools to push it. They want to make sure that, you know, any effort to, you know, try to get a kid to identify with their own body, that that gets banned. Uh, they've, they've put that into some of their proclamations. And so we, again, like, I mean, this is just the prison stuff is insane because we can all kind of envision what being in prison would be like and why, you know, this idea of having, you know, all these prisoners engaging in safe sex seems like a pretty bad idea. But once it gets into the realm of our children, then I think it becomes really like a moral issue of our time.
Well, and I kind of wonder if if there isn't a place in here for some kind of suit brought by, not by the ACLU, because they don't actually defend civil liberties anymore, but maybe a, a conservative group. Because imagine this, you take a biological man who likes to dress up and present as a woman, the classic transgender, so that they, they, they identify with a different gender. It does not mean that they're homosexual. It, you know, so if you put that man who's still a, perhaps a heterosexual but in you know, but likes to dress up a different way or present a different way into a women's prison. You you don't have you know I don't have to draw you a picture to to say what's going to happen there. Women are going to be assaulted and women are going to have whatever you call consensual sex in a place where no consent is even legally possible. And you're going to end up with pregnancies. You're going to end up with assaults. It would seem to me that it violates the the civil rights. Because even prisoners in prison who were there for committing a crime, a woman who's committed a crime, still has civil rights, right? No, that's, that's absolutely correct. And unfortunately, you know, they used to say, oh, you guys are just doing, you know, scare tactics. But it's happened, unfortunately. I live in Loudoun County, Virginia, and we had a rape last year at the high school here where a transgender student went into the, the female uh, restrooms and, and went after a student. Uh, we also have examples of, you know, this happened in Alaska where there was a battered women's shelter and uh, a male who was clearly disturbed went in there and then started assaulting women, right? I, this is insanity. We have to be able to provide women with private spaces uh, where they can feel secure in their own bodies. And I think when we're kind of going down this route, it's really dangerous. Okay, last question for you, John, because you're, you're, you're a good sort. Any idea why Loudoun County, Virginia has become sort of the Bermuda Triangle of bizarre stuff going on. Do you have any theories? No, I do. Loudoun County is one of the richest counties in the country, and I really think as our uh, you know elite, progressive, wealthy folks have kind of lost their minds, uh, you're seeing the the wealthy suburbs that used to be you know vote red suddenly starting to embrace this woke stuff. But the one encouraging thing is with Governor Yunkin's race last year. Uh, we actually saw Loudon shift dramatically back towards Republicans. It still voted blue, but it wasn't by the same percentage. And so my hope is that there's still a few. My, my, my neighbors seem pretty sane. I'm hoping that uh, there's enough sane people there that we can continue to push back against them. John, it's always a pleasure. That's John Schweppe, Director of Policy and Government Affairs of the American Principles Project. And, John, we always appreciate your perspective from the Bermuda Triangle of, of Woke in Loudoun County. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as I always remind you, liberals need to have double standards or they'd have no standards at all. So consider this. Ordinarily, if you had an incident in which 53 human beings, not just 53 human beings, but 53 people who are foreign nationals, who are not poor, not rich, uh, not affluent, not well represented. The deaths of 53 people in one place would be shocking. And the left would be all over this saying, oh, we have to do something about this. I think the reason you hear a deafening silence from the left and from the White House is that these 53 who died, died because of the policies of the Joe Biden administration. They died in the most horrific way. The death toll is now 53 uh, that's 13 women and uh, and 40 men who are in a basically a metal box, a tractor trailer trailer that was outside of San Antonio, uh, parked there because it had engine trouble, fake license plates, fake logos, loaded with illegal aliens, and those people died because they baked to death inside that metal box. Now, 
I thought we'd talk about that with Laura Reese, who's a senior research fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation and the former acting deputy chief of staff at Homeland Security. Ms. Reese, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. How much does how much how much of this uh, is is as a result of Joe Biden's policies of open borders and lax enforcement? Well, it's completely a result of uh, the administration's open border policies. Uh, smugglers know that the border is open and continue to push people through in, in various ways, whether it's inside a truck or uh, you know through the river or, or other or other manners. Uh, migrants south of the border know that the border is open because they keep coming from all over the world, basically three-quarters of the globe at this point, Uh, because no matter what the administration says, whether Secretary Mayorkas or the press secretary, they can continue to say the border is closed. Uh, But so long as someone gets through and calls home, you know, to their home nation and say, you know, I got through, come on, it's going to keep it's going to keep happening, and we're going to have more deaths, whether it's deaths of migrants um, or uh, deaths of Americans at the hands of criminal aliens who should not be here or uh, terrorists. And Ms. Reese, ordinarily in America, people are shocked if a crime is committed. But if a crime is committed with a financial motive, you know, killing somebody for money, killing somebody for life insurance, burning your house down for money. Every time you add money to it, I think you amplify the nature of the crime because you suggest you're willing to hurt people in order to get money. This isn't being done for free, and it's certainly not being done as some kind of ad hoc activity where a bunch of illegal aliens get together and charter a long-haul truck. This is being done by criminal organizations who are making a lot of money on this, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, they've never, ever um, earned this much money than under the Biden administration. And the Biden administration won't take blame for this. They they will deflect blame on this like they do every other issue, be it inflation or, or otherwise. Um, they like to pat themselves on the back that, you know, they might be catching more smugglers or starting more investigations of traffickers. But it is they themselves who are enriching the smugglers and creating the trafficking victims. So it's as if they are creating the weather and then stand in the rain and complain, oh, it's raining. Um, They need to uh, shut down the border and then this stops. If you put in policies that prevent illegal immigration, then you don't get the smuggling, you don't get the trafficking victims. And then you don't have to go spend money chasing people down for investigations. Is there any legal mechanism? I mean, because this is the question I get from callers all the time. They'll say, look, if this is against the law and there are people who are sworn to faithfully execute the laws of the United States, uh, that, that you'd say, well, there should be a way to make them do their jobs. Is there a way to get the federal courts, let's say, to tell the, the president, if, unless you want to change the laws over on Capitol Hill, and Biden hasn't tried to do that yet, at least not successfully, then you have to enforce the laws that are on the books. Any way to make that happen? Well, states have been trying to and have been suing the federal government over a host of these immigration issues just since Biden has been in office. And the states are winning. Uh, but then you get the administration that doesn't really comply with the court orders, whether that is uh, using Title 42, the public health authority for COVID purposes, or uh, fully reinstituting um, Remain in Mexico, or not um, 
limiting what ICE can do uh, in terms of arresting and detaining and removing to a very short list of priorities, and, and the list goes on. So if you've got an administration that, one, won't follow the law, and then when you go sue them and win in court, and then won't follow the court order, you know, where are we at? And so we need members of Congress to really yank on the funding uh, of the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department, um, HHS, and the State Department where relevant to just stop this um, processing and paroling and mass um, asylum in its tracks. Now, you know, we're going to have to wait, hopefully, for the, at least the House to flip, and then, you know, you need members with strong spines to, to do this. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of contingencies there. Um, but the regular mechanisms in law and in the Constitution are not being followed right now. Yeah, and, and, and waiting till January doesn't seem, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem acceptable to me. Let me try another route. With the federal judges, you say the judge says you have to do this, and then the president just says, hey, judge, pound sand. Is any, I've, I've watched judges before, and to use a real pedestrian example, I've watched judges say to somebody, take your hat off in my courtroom or I'll find you in contempt of court and I'll throw you in jail. I mean, judges, and especially federal judges, have some power. They've got some teeth and they have access to the federal marshals and others. Is there any judge out yep. there angry enough at having the president thumb his nose at the federal judiciary who's willing to say, okay, fine. Uh, then Mayorkas is going to be in handcuffs and hauled off to a jail cell, even if we just have to do it to make a point. Is there anybody, is there a judge out there with a spine? Well, we haven't seen it yet, but I, I do think we're at that point. Um, and we're going to get another decision from the Supreme Court tomorrow regarding Remain in Mexico. Uh, now, a Texas federal judge has already told the administration you need to fully implement it. And what the administration does is it will implement it a little bit, say, yes, court, we're in compliance, when really they're not, they're some in their nose. So, yeah, we need some judges to take that next step, you know, use the next tool that they have to enforce those orders. You're right. I guess, I guess, Ms. Reese, it, it just, I know there's a bunch of, there are a bunch of judges out there that, especially during Trump, they love the idea of throwing out a decision, and they knew it would probably get overturned later on, but they'd say, I can do this. I can shut down the, you know, the, the so-called Muslim ban, which wasn't a ban on Muslims at all. But, but they do it even if they knew they'd get overruled later on. And I think they like the idea. I've got some authority. I'm going to use it. I, I guess it just kind of amazes me that when, when the, the president and his administration are just not doing this at all, that there aren't some judges who'd say, okay, I'll show you because the judiciary has some power as well. And, and it surprises me that for all the judges love to come down with controversial orders, I, I think it, it sometimes makes their name or, or at least shows their, their political leanings. You know, they can say, see, I did that, even if it got undone later on, uh, that in this case, you'd think there'd be at least one of them out there who'd be willing to take some action. Well, I hope you're right. And, uh, and yes, I mean, we deserve it at this point. Absolutely. Laura Reese is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Reese, thanks for the time. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And naysayers, you know naysayers always go to the head of the line on this show. If you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find it easily at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or on our website. The vote counts the same. LarsLarson.com. Uh, we talk a lot about crime, 
and about the big changes that have been made in many American cities. Uh, defunding of police, which was embraced by the left, even to the point where there were people like the current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, who actually raised money to get criminals out on bail, even though they were accused of serious crimes in many cases. I thought we'd talk about that with Lance LaRusso, who's an attorney, a former cop, and the author of the books When Cops Kill and Blue News, the proceeds of which go to police-related charities. Lance, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So is it good news or bad news out there when it comes to violent crime in America in this kind of environment? It's out of control. There are cities where people are literally afraid to do anything other than try to run to their cars, get to their offices, and then come home and lock their doors. People shouldn't have to live that way. And when you talk about the zero bail or the cash, no cash bail or these revolving doors that have been set up, all they're doing is making poor people extremely, for the most part, very poor people, extremely unsafe in their own communities, because the people that are committing crimes most often are preying on the poorest people in our communities. You know, Lance, a few years ago, if you'd said, well, crime is a nonpartisan issue, I'd say I agree with you in general. But when I see people like uh, Fetterman in Pennsylvania running for the Senate on a campaign that is to a large extent wrapped around, let's let half the convicted criminals in prison out and let's eliminate cash bail, meaning if you're accused of a crime, unless it's murder and they're going to lock you up with no bail whatsoever allowed by the Constitution, if you're accused of any other crime, we should just let you go free pending your your trial uh, without any kind of security at all. That, that 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 sends the message that apparently there are some people out there, Fetterman among them, who believe, yeah, the American voter is going to embrace this stuff. What, is, what does that say? Well, I mean, that's an interesting theory that, it, that people are doing this with some sort of a belief that it will have a positive outcome. And, and I think that you have to take that perspective when you're looking at politics and people running for office. My concern is it's even more pernicious than that, because I think some of these people really believe that if we just didn't enforce the law, we wouldn't have dangerous people running around. So, for example, the people that believe in gun control, which are just, it's just a fiction. You're not going to click your fingers and make guns disappear. It's never going to happen. But they're content to say that it's okay for people to run around with murderous hearts as long as they don't have access to weapons to carry it out. And that's the bottom line. It's too difficult for them to fix the actual issues with people wanting to do harm and preying on other people in society. So they just ignore it. And that's not going to work. Is I mean, I understand these people say, so if we only didn't lock these people up, you know, that people behind bars learn more about being criminals. But you have to be pretty darn bad. Uh, to, to even land in prison today. In most parts of America, they don't send the majority of felons to prison, do they? No. And as a matter of fact, there was a study done. I'm trying to get a hold of it so I can read some more of the details. But there was a study done recently by the Manhattan Institute about people who are involved in crime in Chicago. And they saw that the people who are arrested for a shooting crime have probably an average of 10 prior arrests. And people who are actually sentenced to prison over and over and over again have prior arrests. So this Hollywood notion that you have somebody who arrested their first time for a quote, nonviolent offense, um, it, they wind up in prison and then they become institutionalized and they can never be free in society again because they're burdened by the system. That's just simply fiction. The people who are in prison today, especially with all of the 
programs to get people out of jail and all the rehabilitation programs and then COVID, which emptied a lot of jails. The people who are in prison right now are really dangerous. That's why they're there. Yeah, they're like, uh, I remember the men in black line was the best of the best of the best. This is like the worst of the worst of the worst. If you're locked up in a prison, you actually have to work hard as a criminal uh, to be especially bad so that you can end up with any time behind bars and everybody else is sent is set free. And I have to say, if I were of a criminal nature and I thought, hey, I did all this stuff and, and they didn't do much of anything to me. I mean, I think that message would penetrate. You'd say, well, if I'm inclined to do more of it, I don't really have to worry that the system, meaning the politicians, the courts, the cops, the prosecutors and the prisons and the parole boards, they're not going to do anything to me anyway, so why don't I just go out and do whatever I care? Well, you basically have to ask a question to some of these folks that kind of, you know, promulgate this theory about letting people out of prison. When you have a person who has distinguished themselves in a bad way by showing that they are a danger to the people around them in a free society, what should you do with them? And I think for a lot of people that are advocating these policies, what you should do with them is let them out because they're not coming to their gated communities. They're not coming to their offices where they're protected by metal detectors and private security. So it really doesn't matter to them. And at cocktail parties, it sounds really good to say, yeah, we should just let people out of jail. But we've seen an increase in 2021. We had a 115% increase in ambushes on law enforcement officers. We're having law enforcement officers killed on a regular basis now, not because they were in a struggle with a bad guy, because they're sitting in their cars and they're getting shot. So blaming firearms for that is just nonsensical. We see over and over again when we catch these people, they are dangerous people who have been let out of prison or allowed to return to society when they have demonstrated that they should not live in a free society. See, and I'm concerned that there are too many people who aren't in those gated communities but who still go with that line of argument. They say, well, maybe they're right. I, I don't think they are, uh, uh, because I think experience shows it. When you see states or cities say, we're going to get tough on crime, and they do, and they actually do it, they see a drop in crime. And, and in some ways, it's like one of those uh, situations where they get tough on crime, and then a number of years go by, and they say, Kai, crime isn't that bad. Why do we need all these tough laws? And they say, because when you take the tough laws off, there will be a lag, and then at some point, crime will start going up again. And in five or 10 years, you'll say, why aren't we doing anything about this? It's like we go through these constant cycles of let's go soft on crime and wait till it starts to have an effect. And then we'll go hard on crime and then it'll push it down for a while. And we go in this big, long sign curves, you know, of, of up and down instead of just adopting a sensible set of policies and saying, if you're a bad enough criminal, we got to incapacitate you, number one, so you can't do it anymore. And number two, send a message to all your fellow criminals, don't do this, there will be consequences. And we seem to be in one of those cycles where we're going to say, hey, let's just let them go and see what happens. What, what could possibly go wrong? Well, and I, we, we've seen what can go wrong. It was called the 1960s, and then it was called the 1990s. And it's pretty interesting. I re heard an interview recently with someone who had uh, been a police administrator in the early 1990s in the Clinton administration when a lot of the uh, crime bills were passed, including the very, very high penalties for the possession of crack cocaine, which now everybody thinks is racist. But when you see the people who passed it, now they're all in power um, in the Democratic Party. But they, the reaction that was, that was stirred up was because of the intense violence from the mid to late 80s surrounding the cocaine trade. 
So it very well it, it very well is cyclic when you start looking at the fact that we did not enforce crime. We we backed off. Uh, we did not put people in prison who were violent, and now we're reaping the the, uh, the you know the benefits of it, if you will. Where people are saying, well, these policies are working. Well, if you're measuring them by how few people we have in prison, then sure, they're working. But if you're measuring by people feeling safe in their houses, then they're failing miserably. That's a very good point. That's Lance LaRusso. Lance, thanks very much. His books, the proceeds of which go to police charities, When Cops Kill and Blue News. He is a an attorney, a former cop, and the author of those books. Back in a moment, we'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a, always glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. There's an interesting case that's been brought. I think it's an outrageous case that's been brought by the Biden Justice Department. Uh, Tom Jipping joins me now, who's deputy director of the Ed Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow at Heritage. I'm not a lawyer. But I understood the Supreme Court in its Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade to be saying, this is not a decision uh, that's based on the Constitution. Uh, the abortion rights are found nowhere in the Constitution. Therefore, it is up to the states because that's what the Constitution says. Unless it's one of the enumerated powers of the U.S. federal government, then it's a decision made by the states. So fine, it's going to be made by the states. The state of Idaho says, all right, we're going to put a limit on abortions. Anything past six weeks is illegal. In fact, it's a it's a criminal act if a doctor performs an abortion after six weeks. But most of the abortions are done before six weeks or by the six-week mark. So it does not outlaw most abortions. And it may, in fact, inspire some young ladies seeking an abortion to make the decision and make it early. So having said that, the Biden DOJ is now bringing a lawsuit against Idaho. And that's where it gets into the legal uh, end of this. And I need to talk to Tom Jipping about that and find out whether I'm on base or off base on that. Tom, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. So if I understand the case they're making, they're saying, well, if you make it a crime for a doctor to perform an abortion after six weeks, and then you have some circumstance uh, in which a young lady is pregnant, she's injured or, or medically compromised in some way, car wreck, uh, accident, fall, whatever, and a doctor has to decide immediately uh, either I abort the, the baby even past six weeks or I lose the mother, that the Biden DOJ is worried in that case the doctor will be charged with a crime. But none of this has happened yet. Are they able to bring a case against the state for what might happen because of the state law? Well, you're, you're right. This is hypothetical at this point. Uh, what, what the Biden administration is trying to do now that the Supreme Court you know, has lifted its complete blockade of pro-life legislation, the Biden administration is still trying to find some strategy that they can use to keep states from doing what the, uh, the Constitution allows them to do. The last thing the Biden administration wants is for the American people actually to have a say in what their state laws are on abortion. The argument here is that there's a federal law that requires uh, Medicare receiving hospitals when someone does come into the emergency room that they must give them what they call stabilizing care. And the argument by the Justice Department is, well, if that stabilizing care, in a doctor's opinion, would include an abortion, then you've got a conflict between the state law that would say no abortion and the federal law that requires the, the physician to be able to perform one. 
for you know a few technical reasons, uh, this is actually a fake issue. The Biden administration wants to say federal law preempts state law, but this is not really a conflict between federal and state law. Under the Constitution, federal law you know wins, but only if the federal and the state laws are on the same subject. The federal law here isn't on abortion itself. The federal law simply says the doctor uh, can use his discretion. But if a hospital, you know, feels that that's a conflict between receiving Medicare funds and therefore this rule about treating emergency patients and a state law that says no abortions, a hospital can simply not receive Medicare funds from the federal government. Right. It's a fake, a fake conflict, and they're trying to use this, and they're going to use this on a lot of other states, too, uh, to still keep the American people and their legislatures from deciding how abortion should be. Handled. Okay, now, now, Tom, I always confess I'm not a lawyer, but let me ask you something. I've had lots of conversations where I've said, well, why this law might cause this? And the answer I get from lawyers is say, yes, it might, and you can't bring an action until it has. I mean, if I say, well, this, this new tax law is going to produce a perverse result, can we can we bring an action to stop it from produ- and and the law every lawyer I've ever talked to about issues like that says yes Lars it might produce a perverse uh, result and as soon as it does you can take it to court but you can't take it to court and say your honor this might produce or or, or maybe even certainly will produce a perverse re- result someday and so we'd like you to strike it down on the basis of what it might do they say you have to wait till that thing happens mm-hmm. first now am I, I wrong I, about that. I, I, no, I think you've got a, a good point that this is a this is a little bit different in the sense that the issue here isn't whether the state law is constitutional. The issue is whether there's a, a, a fundamental conflict between the federal and the state law. As I say, even on the merits, even after something like this would happen, I think it's a fake issue, and I don't think the, the Biden administration would win in court. Uh, but then there's also the, the issue you're pointing out, which is at this point it's hypothetical, and a court ought to say, come back after there's an actual conflict, you know, when there's an actual case that involves the, the conflict that you're claiming. Um, this, this is a fake issue. And, and it's and it's not the last one. The, the, will they the find federal, a judge who will buy into that fake issue? Oh, you can find a federal judge to buy into any issue. <laughs> um, ultimately, appeals courts, and even if it would get to the Supreme Court, uh, I think they're going to say no to this. But by that time, the, the administration will have gotten a lot of political mileage out of, say, see, we're standing up for your abortion rights, even if it's a fake issue, even if they're going to lose in the long run, which of course means that they've wasted a lot of our tax dollars. Unbelievable. Tom, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. You're very welcome. Thanks. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? then go to iraadvantage.com. 
view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at IRAAdvantage.com.